Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. And we'll read the first 17 verses. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. But you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Well, come with me, men, as we climb the stairs to the upper room on that Thursday night in Jerusalem. And through John's account here in John 13, we are, we are let into something of the context of Christ's service in that room. As we look primarily in this session at the, the first uh, part of this chapter, it's like John opens the door just wide enough for us to look inside that room. 
And so I'd like us to do that. And I want to show you some of the things as we witness what Jesus did so that we might learn what it means for us to minister even to one another. So think, soon this group of men here will be up. They're soon about to leave this room. The gathering will be over. And yet before they part, there are these final lessons that these men need to consider. In an unusual sense, soon this group, here, we will soon leave this room. And before we go from this place, let's, let's briefly look through this open door that, that John has left just ajar for us, that we might see in, in to this room and, and see what I hope might strengthen us, might refresh us, might encourage us on our way. For the primary thing for us to see, I remind you, the primary thing is the Lord's model of humble service motivated by true love. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to show you four things in the time that we have this morning here in this, what I'm calling the context of service. And the first of those things that John lets us see is what I'm calling the evening of agony. The evening of agony. And John is describing it still in verse 1. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Jesus knew what the time was. And John says he knew that his hour had come. Jesus knew, that is, what time this was in redemptive history. He understood what part he was to play. He understood that his hour had come. He knew what was coming. He knew it was imminent. He was on the eve of agony. He understood the depth of the suffering that was before him in his hour. And of course, Jesus has already mentioned this in chapter 12. And in one of our previous sessions, we were looking at some of these same verses. But for the interest of this context, come with me back to chapter 12 and verse 23. And think of this, this hour that Jesus knew was before him. He's already mentioned this in verse 23 of chapter 12. Jesus answers and he says to them, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be Glorified. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Troubled. That, that deep agitation is raging inside of our Lord at this point. There's this great internal disturbance, and it's becoming very intense. Because the horrors of the impending cross was, can we say, felt now in a way as never before. What shall I say, he says. 
And then Jesus gives like a prelude to his Gethsemane struggle, which will unfold in just a few hours' time. At the end of verse 27, he says, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And so Jesus knew why he had come. He had agreed to his Father's purpose. He understood all that that involved. This night was the eve of agony. But brethren, please note, Jesus is not self-absorbed. And do not we see that with so many people today? They are self-absorbed. But Jesus in this hour is not self-absorbed. And here they are in this room to participate in the Passover, as John tells us in verse 1 of chapter 13. And so we assume that the slain, the roasted lamb, could we call it, is there on the table before them in that room. Jesus knew what that paschal lamb was about. It had always pointed toward him and his hour. And soon he, the Lamb of God, would shed his blood. He would be offered up as the atoning sacrifice to turn away God's wrath for all of those who would believe in him for his own. This was the pathway by which, as John says, Jesus knew. He knew that he would depart from this world and that he would go to his Father. Jesus knew his hour had come. Suffering and the most horrendous trial was about to consume him and all of what was involved in that. In the hours before him, his disciples fleeing him in the garden, Peter's denial, the fake trial, the soldiers mocking and abusing, a weak politician rejected by the people, scourged, crucified, all alone, forsaken by his father in the darkness. And his righteous soul, having all of the sins of all of his people, laid upon him as the substitute, bearing the wrath of God. And Jesus knew that, that hour had come. Man, this is the context. It's in this moment that Jesus rose up from supper and he got down. To wash their feet. He understood perfectly what lay ahead. But Jesus isn't paralyzed in a stupor of ministerial self-pity. The servant of the Lord was not self-absorbed. And yet how so easy is that for us to become Sometimes the ministry delivers some seasons of great trial. Opposition can come at times that seem so intense. Indeed, very painful. It cuts deep. And we can tend to be paralyzed in that stupor of self-pity. Oh, isn't the ministry hard? I've been rejected again. Whoa, 
Woe is me. Oh, it's so unfair. The way that I've been treated and, and criticized and accused and falsely accused. All oh, the hurt of the past. It leaves you tempted to quit. Or if not that, to back off and not get so close with people anymore. It feels safer just to offer a superficial ministry. Despite all that the servant of the Lord knew was about to crash down upon him, and that did so deeply impact him, yet he never backed off. He got down and he lovingly served those men. Yes, the very ones he knew in a few hours would forsake him in the garden. He loved them. The evening of agony. Secondly, the time of treachery. Verse 2 in chapter 13, John says, and supper being ended, the devil, or having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And now John shows us something else, or should I say, someone else in that room, Judas. And before Judas had walked through that door, he'd been somewhere. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 22. Luke 22. Let's just read the opening paragraph here of Luke 22. Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he promised and, and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude... Now verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. So before Jesus walked, as pardon me, before Judas walked into the upper room, he had already made his agreement with the chief priests. And if it was that, that that was when he got his 30 pieces of silver, I wonder where he stashed that bag on his way between those chief priests and that upper room. The devil had already been at work tempting Judas. Yes, spiritual warfare was raging in these hours. And Jesus knew all about it. We come back to John chapter 13 again as, as John occasionally puts in his comments as the chapter unfolds. He says in verse 11 of chapter 13, For he knew, Jesus knew, who would betray him. 
Jesus understood what was happening. And it wasn't just factual information of divine knowledge. He was deeply troubled by this. Verse 21 tells us. And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Again in verse 30, when the scene is at the end, John says, Having received the piece of bread, he then went out, that is Judas, immediately, and it was night. And the next time, that Jesus sees Judas, he would be kissed by him in an act of treachery. No wonder John says in verse 21 that Jesus was troubled in spirit. He's deeply disturbed inside, not merely with hurt feelings of a, of a wounded friendship, but his holy humanity shrinking from the dreadful nature of this devilish deed. Betrayal, it's, it's so ugly. It's so painful. And Jesus knew who would betray him and how it would happen, even using a kiss, the sign of friendship and affection. And though Jesus gave indication in, in the upper room who would betray him, he knew. We know the scene. None of the others twigged. In verse 26, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when, when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And what Jesus had done in that room prior to verse 27, prior to him saying these final words to Judas. Jesus, think of what he had done prior to that with Judas. Jesus had moved around that room. He had gone to every one of the 12 pairs of feet and he had washed them. And this is surely one of the most staggering and yet at the same time, the most admiring things to unfold in that upper room on that night. And for us to peer through this door that John has left open for us and to see in our mind's eye through John's pen and his account, Jesus moving around that, that group ever so tenderly, carefully washing everyone's feet, including the two that belonged to Judas. Think of it, Jesus washed the betrayer's feet knowing fully where those feet will go in a few hours. Yes, now they're clean, but soon they'll be dusty again as he goes on his trek of treachery. Those feet are going to go to a rendezvous with the religious leaders and gather the troops and lead the party out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be found and jo Judas knew that he would find Jesus there to arrest him and betray him with a kiss. Brothers in his service, Jesus didn't back off. He was not repelled 
even from the one he knew was his betrayer. The secret arrangement was already in place. And yet Jesus served him willingly, lovingly, Christ the servant, the minister's model. See him going with humility and serving in a genuine way. The one that he knew was plotting his downfall. Have you ever experienced betrayal in the ministry? Now, obviously, it's not going to be exactly like this, but nevertheless, betrayal on a lesser scale is, it's truly painful. That church member, or maybe even that fellow officer goes behind your back and is plotting. You've been with them for years. And the plan is discovered. And what's our tendency? Our tendency is to withdraw from them. Perhaps it's out of fear. Perhaps it's out of offence. Maybe it's anger. And it can morph into bitterness. Serve him. Serve her now after all that they have done to me? No way. Just talking to them can be an enormous battle internally. My brothers, by the grace of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus shows us how to serve. Even those who you might suspect, perhaps for very good reason, are currently slandering you before brethren, or maybe they may be even plotting your demise. They want you gone. One thing is clear. This type of thing is not produced by mere dogged determination. We need the Holy Spirit. And that has surely been a reoccurring theme of this week. But I remind you of Isaiah 42, the servant of the Lord, the one in whom the Lord delights, Christ. I have put my spirit on him. And oh, how we need to be filled with God's Spirit if we would serve ourselves faithfully and lovingly and humbly even in a season or a time of treachery. Thirdly, the air of rivalry, the air or atmosphere of rivalry. You see, by bringing together John 13 and Luke 22, I think we get the sense that there was tension in the upper room. Jesus washing the disciples' feet was designed to do several things, I think, including to help bring an end to the strife and the self-seeking that lay behind the tension between the disciples in the upper room. On a couple of occasions previously, the rivalry between these men had broken out, and the Gospels record that. 
But even in this room, as the Passover celebrations are going on, Jesus washing their feet, Jesus actively demonstrating humility, what are the disciples still doing? They're arguing about their own glory. Again, if you look back into Luke's gospel, chapter 22 and verse 24, Luke says, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Surely they should have been savouring these final moments with Jesus. But there was this rivalry, this spirit of competition, And in this same chapter in Luke 22, Jesus responds in verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves for... Who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. There was ambition, envy, pride, contention, division between these men who were destined for the ministry. Here's a relatively, what could we say, a group of relatively young men. They're ambitious. They're lacking humility. And that brought tension into that room. Does that happen to sound familiar to anyone else here? Now, sometimes... Young men aspiring to the ministry or young men in the ministry can be the worst offenders of this. But it's not just young men. We can all see ourselves as better than others in the ministry. I mean, my ministry, it deserves recognition. And why did he get asked to preach? I can preach so much better than him. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Thousands fancy they are humble who cannot bear to see an equal more honoured and more favoured than themselves. Few rejoice in a neighbour's promotion over their own. The quantity of envy and jealousy in the world is a glaring proof of the prevalence of pride. Let us be on guard against this sore disease. The harm that it has done to the church of Christ is far beyond calculation. But my church is better than yours. My denomination, it's more biblical than yours. The air of rivalry still exists today. It was in that room. Is it in this room? Sometimes there are tensions 
and even, could we say, hostilities between ministers of the gospel. I've seen enough of it in my own country to know that it weakens the kingdom of God, the work of the kingdom. And so I appeal to you, brothers, in Christ. We we are meant to be colleagues in the work of the gospel. But some don't talk to each other when in the same room. They avoid one another at the same conference or event. Fractures in fellowship between churches is largely due to pride. And sadly, most often, it's found in the church leaders. But I'm not going to back down because I'm so right. Let let me meddle. Let, Let me press this just a little more. Is there a controversy between you and another brother in the ministry? Where is the Christ-like love? Now, if God is pointing to you, brother, I appeal to you, humble yourself and go pick up the bowl and the towel. Here Christ displayed before his disciples of rivalry what they should have been doing. He's the minister's model. Now, fourthly, and finally, the act of humility. And as we look through the door that John left open, what can we see near the entrance to that door? Perhaps it's on a table. There we see a jar, we see a jug of water, we see a servant's towel, all nicely folded and ready for use. But we also see Jesus. Now see what John says in verse 3 of John chapter 13, please. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, And was going to God. All things had been placed into Jesus' hands by the Father. He had come from God and he would soon be going back to God. He had all authority. That means he had the authority to call thousands of angels if he so desired. But even so, though he could do that, that did not exclude him from picking up that bowl and that towel near the door. In other words, what I'm saying is Jesus wasn't above such things. And neither are we. We read before in Luke 22. He that is greatest among you, let him be the one who serves. Let me state the obvious. Jesus is the greatest of all. He was the greatest in that room. And he humbled himself to become their servant. 
We mustn't miss the contrast John appears to highlight, as he often does through his gospel, and in this case, in relation to our Lord's hands. That the sovereign ruler of the skies had all things in his hands, and his hands are used, his literal hands, are used to wash those disciples' feet. It's a truth worth pondering. That the king of ages, uh, uh, with whom all things are committed into his hands, he did not think that he was, it was beneath him to do the humblest work of a servant by using his literal hands. Oh, what humility. What condescension. Knowing that all power belonged to him. And it did. Yet he rises from supper and he takes the role of a common house servant. One of the twelve should have been the first up to do this usual task. But no, pride had glued them to their upper room seats. Jesus knew all things were committed to him, especially in relationship to the work of redemption. That the Son was entrusted with all those given to him by his Father. Those he chose before time to redeem with his precious blood, as we know. He had come from God for them. And he would go to God once their redemption was accomplished. He knew that he was going to God. And when he does, he knows how he will be received. When he goes to God, how he'll be greeted in this triumphant returning, the reigning king of glory coming back into heaven. And yet here, knowing all of that, this act of humility is presented so clearly by John. And so watch now. In this passage, as John describes in clear detail what Jesus did next, he says he rose from supper. Why did he rise from supper? Was it so he, the, the king of the ages, could display his eternal majesty? Was he rising so that his disciples would fall down in worship before him? Well, it could have been, but no. He does what none in the room next to him dared do. Verse 4, he rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, he took a towel and girded himself, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now John writes this probably decades later. And yet he writes it, yes, by the inspiration of the Spirit, but he writes it as if it was yesterday. That every detail is so burnt into his memory of what happened at this moment. Jesus quietly stands up. He puts aside his outer long garment. He took up that servant's towel, which was apparently fairly long, so that it could be tied around your waist, and then with the, the length left over to use to wipe those wet feet. And Jesus goes about the washing of their feet with no fanfare, no fuss, no announcements, no commentary. The servant, par excellence, 
the one who for millennia angels had adorned and served. He humbles himself to be a house servant. This is such a powerful demonstration of his own words when he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And brethren, this was not a pretended act of humility done before TV cameras so that the world can watch like the Pope does each year as part of his Easter tradition using a golden basin, a jug and fine cloth. And for some reason, the TV cameras are there. Jesus did not act for show. Jesus did not act for pretense. He quietly went about his task, not seeking visibility, nor seeking applause. A servant pastor is not to be preoccupied by serving with a desire for visibility and recognition. In this scene, Jesus went about the foot washing quietly. He got up from supper. And in some ways we could argue he was out of sight. He was out of the way. He was not on a, a platform. It was not for show. He's not preoccupied with visibility and Instagram. The twelve, we would understand, are lying there on leaning on one elbow. Their feet are likely out behind them. And so that's where Jesus goes to wash those feet. That is, it seems that Jesus is behind them and in many ways going about his task out of the way, out of sight. And those hands handling dirty feet, taking up the towel to wipe off the wet feet, all 24 feet. Now, in this passage, I think there is more going on than just this simple act of washing dirty feet. Jesus turns, doesn't he, the conversation with Peter, and he takes it into a deeper level, as he often does, to, to speak of another washing needed. That that act of washing their feet pointed to something much higher, to a cleansing of a deeper significance. And so in that sense, the foot washing act was a representation of what he would do at Golgotha for his own, cleansing their souls from guilt and spiritual pollution. And Jesus makes that connection here. Yet nevertheless, Jesus calls his disciples to imitate his example. Not the act itself explicitly, but in humbling himself so low, and serving the needs of his brethren. Let's now bring it to a close by seeing what Jesus says toward the end of this scene from verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example 
that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. And so Jesus says to the twelve, you ought to wash one another's feet. You should have been down on the floor. Jesus presses the point. And let me bring some closing applications just from this thought. My brother in the ministry, are you willing to serve your fellow pastor or your colleague in the ministry? Will you help him? Let me suggest to you, verse 14 is a one another text. And yes, it has application to all Christians. But in the first place, it's given to the apostles, the would-be leaders of Christ's church. And so, I press the application for us as men in the ministry toward one another. How do we go with this? What is your attitude to your colleagues in ministry? How do you see him? Is he one that you see as someone that you ought to serve? Or is he like your rival? Is he almost your competitor? You see, the first context of the disciples being told to imitate Jesus when it comes to the outworking of humble service was toward one another. And so how do pastors show love and humble service to one another? How do we put this into practice? Well, let me just very quickly give some practical thoughts by firstly saying the Christian ministry can be lonely at times, right? Even if you are in a fairly big church with numerous elders, there's still a sense in which you can feel a sense of being alone. But then again, and there may be other situations, you're feeling a sense of being alone, especially if there are not many like-minded churches near you. Closest like-minded church to us that we, uh, uh, in terms of like-mindedness, would be 10 hours drive. Maybe you're a sole elder. You feel isolated, alone, easily discouraged. So here's my question. How do pastors lovingly serve one another? In humility. Well, in these cases that I've quickly just given some examples to touch on, I think many of us here, we can reach out to one another via communication. It's, it's an obvious thing, but do we do it? A phone call to inquire, a, a message on WhatsApp or whatever the platform is you use. Recently, I was, I was at another pastor's gathering elsewhere and a seasoned minister of the gospel 
he shared how he phones a young pastor every Saturday night. They inquire together about their souls. They inquire about how their, how their week has been, what things they've learned in their study, what they'll be preaching the next day, and then they pray together. That is a, a wonderful example of loving, humble service for ministers to one another. We can do that type of thing. Or are we so caught up with me in the ministry? If you engage in such conversations and communications, make sure you ask how he is. Don't dominate the conversation. And of course, we can lovingly serve others in ministry when we become aware of those occasions when they have been, what can we say, knocked down ministerially. We can pick the other up in loving, humble service. Maybe it is by long distance in a phone, over a phone call. Maybe it is you hop in the car and you drive and you spend a bit of time with that brother. Why are you there? Because you love him and you're there with the ball and the towel to serve him. Men, we've been served this week by the brethren at Trinity. What a fine example for us. Humble, loving, sacrificial service. The next time you meet up with fellow pastors, here in the first place is the attitude Jesus wants us to have toward one another. And you know, when we do this, there's always a blessing from Christ. This is what happens in his way, isn't it? Let's close with verse 17. If you know these things, not a knowledge in your head that you've got the theory, but you've worked it out in life. An experiential knowledge of these things. Blessed are you if you do them. And so, man, let's be up and let's go. And let's do likewise. We're ministers of the new covenant by the grace of God. Let us serve our people as ones that we are called to serve. Serving with humility, motivated by love. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Behold my servant in whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Behold him. So men, let's be up now and go. What are the things? Filled with his spirit, loving Christ more and more, proclaiming his gospel in spirit power. Men of prayer, praying in the spirit, preachers empowered by the spirit, serving Christ and his people with the spirit upon us and our labours. And when we do so, he and he alone will get all the glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we stand amazed 
we stand in awe, in delight, in love, and yet ashamed that we have not served you as we ought. Forgive us. Again, we plead. And yet we beg of you in hope and anticipation, fill us with your Holy Spirit and make us more faithful, Lord, more useful in your hands. Use us, but use us for your glory. Oh, Lord, thank you for exposing our hypocrisy this week. Thank you for showing us a better way. And help us, Lord, that our eyes and our hearts would be more and more for our Saviour and our Master. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.